Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G-A-L-D-E-M. This song is good. Welcome to Growing Up with Gaudem, the show where we explore the stories, struggles, and triumphs of growing up as people of colour. I'm Natty Kassambala. And I'm Nyala Arboin. Each week, our guests respond to old diary entries, letters, notes, or texts from their younger selves. Helping us understand how their coming of age made them who they are today. How have you been, Natty? I've been okay, although it does seem that every time I get this podcast mic out, someone decides to do some electric drilling or cutting outside of my flat. The building works just... They just won't seem to stop. That's they won't seem to stop. Worse. What are they yeah. even working on? So there's like a building of flats and then there's a church. But I was watching this other podcast the other day and this guy was talking about how every time he goes to New York, he assumes that like it will finally be done. Like when are they <laughs> going to be done building New York? And that's how I feel about London. I'm like, guys, when are we going to be done? Like I've been here for all these years and you're still not it done. It never ends. Like it never ends. Do you ever go into Central and just like, you're on a bridge, you just look out and you're just like, it's just butters, cranes everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Literally. But it's wind turbines that they have a problem with. But these cranes just hang over us. Solange was not lying when she 
made that I tune. I truly thought she was singing about the bird cranes and then I found out <laughs> she was singing about metal cranes. <laughs> it's actually a, a cutting expose on gentrification. <laughs> yeah, it just feels like they're never going to stop building London and it's like, when is it going to be over? Well, I think that is the beauty of capitalism. It will never end. <laughs> it will never end. And if it does end, it's probably a really bad sign. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, the flights my, people have had in the past, it's it's ended then. Exactly. Historically. Yeah, my, my so my parents live in Durban, South Africa, as I talk about once every five episodes. <laughs> and that, that, that city has a really interesting kind of structure in that they obviously like, we went through apartheid and then as they kind of started to regenerate, there was a lot of like white flight from the main city. Mm. And they basically just stopped repairing buildings and doing all of that stuff. And it meant that then the all the amazing, or in heavy quotation marks, like modern development moved to a different town outside the city. And then actually when that became a bit dicey, there was a further, another round of white flight to this other Fuck area, yeah. which is now like 30 minutes from the city. So you have this like massive kind of cosmopolitan looking, European looking city that, has barely any businesses in it still. And then all of the kind of like generation and I guess like construction, all of that stuff is like happening outside the city, which is kind of dire. Yeah. And then when you are like left to your own devices and you make an area pop in or... Mm. Then they come back. Of immig- <laughs> then they come back. Then they, they come, come back. back and they That's when they want to come back. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, mm, you've made this cool. <laughs> Back. Literally, and then, the, and then the scaffolding comes with them too. Uh, yeah, and then you get a box park. Honestly, there's no rest under <laughs> capitalism. Anyway, on to the episode. So today's guest is a queer Chinese-Australian writer and artist. They are a quintessential Gemini. Ooh. Cue all the hate that the Gemini's get. <laughs> Not you doxing them. <laughs> Their inspirations include Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, and Bio Akomo Lafe. And they are a socialist who convinced Britney Spears to join their cause. Our hero. Oh, baby, baby. <laughs> Our hero. Um, I, I was going to make a communist joke, but I couldn't think of any. <laughs> what communist jokes do we have? What communist jokes are there? <laughs> yeah, I was going to make a communist joke, but they don't like to laugh very much. <laughs> I don't want to make an anti-communist joke, though. I am a communist. <laughs> That's hilarious. Socialism. Yeah, there's no yeah, but there's no room for laughter in socialism. <laughs> and on that note, it's Instagram's favourite relationship guru, Mimi Zoo. Welcome to Growing Up with Galdem. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm great. I am actually just like absorbing all the energy from my weekend because I went to a monastery. So I feel very calm and at peace right now. Amazing. Where was that? It was in upstate New York. It's a Vietnamese monastery that I go to quite frequently, especially when I feel like the city life is a little overwhelming. So it was really wonderful. Oh my gosh, that's, I want to hear loads about that. Just to get us started though, it would be amazing if you could tell us in your own words a little bit about who you are and how you would define what you do in the world. Ooh, that's a big question. That's a big and <laughs> question. Yeah. 
I'm Mimi Zhu. I am a writer, an artist, and a lover. And I'm dedicated to writing about the intersections of love and fear. I just came out with a book, Be Not Afraid of Love, that kind of explores all those things. But I'm really devoted to kind of exploring the spaces of the ugly and the messy and also the profound and the beautiful and how they're actually not as separate as we think. Mm, that's beautiful, the ugly and the messy and the profound and beautiful. Yeah. Well, to start things off, can we please talk about Comrade Brittany? We have to know <laughs> what happened there <laughs> with our good sister Britney Spears. Wow. Okay. I love this story. So I honestly think that Britney Spears got me a book deal. Like that's how I would describe that whole situation. So I was in um, I was in lockdown. Obviously, it was like the beginning of the pandemic, and so many of us were extremely lost and confused and uncertain. And what I did during that time is I kind of turned to the written word because that's what I usually turn to. But what felt different this time is that I actually felt really inclined to share what I was saying. So I've been sharing like for a few years now. During the pandemic, I especially started sharing like a lot. And I made this one specific post. It was like a yellow background, very simple design-wise and posted it. And the next day I saw that Britney Spears had posted it in her feed. So that was wild. I was like, oh my gosh, that's like my childhood, you know, icon. But also she was going through her conservatorship at the time. So there were so many layers, right? Because that specific text talked about redistributing wealth, connecting during isolation, which I feel like is stuff that she was kind of grappling with at the time, but on a very subtle way, or she couldn't overtly express herself at the time. So that felt like a little like, hey, this is what I care about. This is what's happening to me. Call out. So yeah, that happened. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's wild. Like I was so happy. And, you know, I was on my phone the whole day and people were just like saying like, oh my gosh, Brittany reposted you. And it was just like cute and fun. But then the next day I woke up and I saw on Twitter that Comrade Brittany was trending. And I was like, oh, now what is this? And I saw that people had made remixes of her songs with like communist anthems. They had photoshopped her in like communist attire. Like a full movement was happening where they were talking about Britney Spears being like a genuine communist. And I was just like, how did this begin? And it led back to my post, which was really wild. And so just imagine just being in deep isolation, being really confused, not being able to see any of my friends, but just my phone blowing up with Britney Spears memes. It was so surreal and so interesting. But because of that, you know, I think there were a lot more people who came to my page who were curious about the writer of the text. And from that point onwards, in a way, her kind of resonance with what I said really like pushed my work into the eyes of the public and or like a, a larger public. It was just like very, very interesting. And I, I think about the times when I was a kid and I would dance and perform to her songs and how my resonance with her work was so many years ago and it kind of came full circle. And then because of that, my agent actually reached out and said, hey, like, it's amazing. I've been following your work for a while. It's amazing to see your work blow up now, finally. 
and asked me if I wanted to write a book. And that kind of started that journey. Oh, and that's the tale of Comrade Brittany. I love that. Yeah, I so I didn't actually know that story. I've been like such a fan of yours for a very long time. And I think it's interesting to hear that kind of in the context of lockdown, especially when so many of us were kind of like yearning for that online connection. And I, I always felt like the work that you were putting out, even in like that wave of infographics that came with like more internet or online activism, I always was like able to recognize when something was yours and when it was kind of unpacking something deeper into how we like navigate this world. Was there any relationship between, did you ever get to like reach out to her? Do you guys, did you guys ever unpack that? Talk about it? I'm so curious. I I tried to DM her. (laughs) I did get a response. But she is busy. Yeah, she's busy. And like, I also don't know how much control she had over her social media at the time. Because it was before she was, you know, freed and liberated from the conservatorship. So, yeah, it was um, very layered. And I think it really moved me, actually, in a deep way. Yeah. And you know what? You got a book out of it. And that is, I'm sure you would have got it anyway. But, you know, still incredible. Thank you. I mean, yeah, that trajectory was really wild and I will like credit her for <laughs> for getting me there, honestly. So, I mean, who can say that, you know? Only you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you have this really rich and quite highly evocative promo video for your book, Be Not Afraid of Love. I don't think I've ever seen a book promoted in this way before, actually. What was kind of the the thought process behind that? Yeah. So I'm working with this group of creatives in New York, Earthship. I've been long-term friends with a lot of the people in that collective, and they actually encouraged me to go for it, you know? I remember there were times when I'd be on calls with them and I'd be like, y'all, I'm not dropping an album, you know, I'm not releasing a film. Like, I don't know if a campaign or whatever is like what I want to do. And they asked me, why not? You know, why not do it big? Why not have a book release that is, that kind of brings in other mediums of art, right? And other forms of creativity and actually invites you to collaborate with other people. I think for me, writing the book, I think is always perceived as a very isolating process. And yes, The practice of it, I did by myself most of the time. But the people who allowed me to write the book, the people who I learned lessons from, are mostly my community. The relationships that I was in, I would say the greatest work of all that I I did writing the book was be in relation with my community, with my friends, with my chosen family, with my biological family, right? And so when they like encouraged me to do it big, I thought about what this body of work meant to me and who I wanted to bring into the collaborative process. And we did a short film, we did a dinner, we did two major events in New York. And all of them, I wanted to bring in the people who have helped me find out who I am, especially queer people of color in the city. And especially those who have been doing like grassroots organizing for a long time, DIY work, you know, that is not co-signed by an institution, but they've been doing like by themselves, for themselves for a long time. Drag artists, you know, like fellow writers and poets who make zines. Like I, I wanted that, like filmmakers who deeply just like 
got their passion not through film school, but through like watching Asian cinema at home, you know, stuff like that. So I wanted to bring in my queer community and kind of like allow all our gifts to be in conversation with each other because I wanted to make sure that the celebration of this book was a celebration of those who made it possible. So it's felt really great. It's felt like really aligned with what I've envisioned for a body of work to be. And it's also taught me to celebrate myself, honestly. That's extremely difficult, but it allowed me to be like, actually, this is something I do want to celebrate and I do want to congratulate myself and my community for because it was a labor of love and I think we deserve to absorb the love as well. So interesting, I think, like even what you said about, you know, oh, I'm not dropping an album, so do I get to, I guess, have that moment of, you know, centering myself and centering my story in a visual way? And even just, I think, in terms of how we view all of these kind of like industries as kind of separate from each other, like, oh, like I need to write a book that appeals to the literary world. And, you know, if I'm in music, then I'm in music and that's my lane. And here's how we do things there. But like, like you say, kind of bringing your community to the centre of it and visual art and all of that can still be a part of the book world and you know thank you yeah and I'm a huge like film head you know like I love film I love music like I've made playlists about this book and I, like you said I think sometimes we compartmentalize or just want to assign somebody a role right and so even when people ask me to describe my profession I think writer is just one of the things that I like to do and I think that's most of us creative people where we like to have we like to make things that are in conversation with all other things that we love. And so that's what I wanted the book launch to feel like on top of being in conversation with the art of my friends and chosen family as well. Especially queer art, I feel like, you know, always requires a platform and always requires the acknowledgement that queer art, especially by people of colour, pioneered a lot of art now. Mm. I always think with books, usually it's just one name on the front, maybe an illustrator's name too but yeah you completely forget sometimes as the reader how collaborative the process is and how many people are involved whether that's on the side of publishing or as you were talking about having your chosen family and your blood family and all your people around you so I think it's yeah a better way to look at writing is collaborative even if it is I guess just you writing yeah no totally like my friend Nema Gatheer, they're a guerrilla theorist and they actually wrote this one thing and we had conversations about this, about citation as a rigorous practice. And I think about that all the time, right? Because citation doesn't just have to be like academic resources, but it's the conversations that you have with your friends, right? And kind of just acknowledging that and bringing that into the story I think, and I've heard actually people say like, that felt kind of like non-traditional, right? To kind of almost shout out your friend in the middle of a passage. And for me, I'm like, but why? Like, why not? Why, why can't I do that when that conversation is as profound and enlightening for the both of us? as any academic text would be, right? And I think it's also like maybe de-hierarchizing the validity of what knowledge is more important, right? Or more... Yeah. 
Exactly. Who gets to be an authority. Right? And it's like, like I said, yeah. my greatest work is being in relation to people. So I want to always reference that and talk about those relationships and honor those people, right? Because too much in history, we've seen, especially black and brown writers or black and brown artists, people be erased, right? Because they weren't considered that legible source, that authoritative source. And so I'm like, especially because, you know, what Nema has taught me, it's like we need to be devoted, right, to citing our friends, to acknowledging how profound our relationships are. That's super interesting. And the idea of, yeah, legible sources and who who gets like their little shout out in the canon is amazing. Do you have a favourite chapter or section of a book? And if so, can you share it with us? Yes. I think it actually changes all the time because I am kind of going through, you know, all these different emotions all the time. I think for a while it was actually grief because interestingly, the grief chapter is one of the most uplifting chapters I wrote. Of course, it includes some pretty like intense stuff that I've gone through pertaining to grief. But I think my favorite thing about the grief chapter is what I write about funerals, actually. But not funeral as like, of course, you know, as a time of deep sadness, also as a time of extreme celebration. You know, when I reference a lot of writers who talk about funerals as community ceremonies, right? As an opportunity to just see how deep your love runs. And for me, it felt like a chapter that was really loving to write because I found myself grieving during the chapter, right? Thinking about how deeply I love the people that I've lost, thinking about how I grieve parts of myself even, and how I love myself enough to grieve that. It's been really interesting to see how Every chapter kind of resonates at different specific times. I think right now, though, my favorite chapter is presence. You know, I live in New York and I think presence is something that can feel like a luxury sometimes because we're so stimulated, you know. And for me, you know, like I said, I went to the monastery yesterday and I did this thing called the walking meditation where I just, me and a huge group of people and monks, We just walked really slowly through moss, through forest, through rocks, through tinkling waterfalls. And that for me just felt miraculous because I felt myself having nothing to prove. And I think as the book has come out, sometimes definitely I have to check my ego. You know, I have to reel it back and always stay grounded. And so for me, presence is really important for me right now because I do want to feel the ground beneath my feet and have the luxury of not having anything to prove, but just feeling perfect for existing. You know, not perfect as in unproblematic or perfect as in I'm flawless, but perfect as in I exist and that's enough. So I think presence as a chapter right now is really, I'm holding it because I need to remind myself of that all the time that's amazing i know so peaceful and oh my god i just really want to go to this monastery i need to get the name of it afterwards (laughs) because let's go oh my god yeah we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be back after this for the extract 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. think it might be time for us to move on to your lovely extract. And just before you read it out for us, if you could give us a little bit of context behind the piece that you've chosen and why, and then we'll get into questions afterwards. This diary that I'm reading from is from about five years ago, when I was going through the on and off again relationship, abusive relationship that I was in and that I expand upon in the book. It's so weird to read stuff from that time because... I was struggling so much. When I read what I've written, it reminds me of like the bodily sensations, the hypervigilance that I was experiencing at the time. Well, at the same time, I extend so much compassion to that person because first of all, they still live inside of me for sure. But also because I was trying my best, you know, and that's like what I can see. From this excerpt, I can see that I was really just trying to get closer to myself and trying to understand something. And so, yeah, this piece I wrote as I was going through the on and off again relationship, grieving this person deeply, grieving this ex-partner, but also knowing that I shouldn't, or I felt really ashamed about missing them and that I shouldn't go back to them, even though at this time I was. Like, I kept returning to them despite the abuse which is hard to admit, but it's real. Yeah, I wrote this because I was feeling really insecure about whether I respected myself and whether I deserved love. So it's hard to read, but at the same time, I feel really strong when I read it because I'm like, I was really trying my best and I was really honest about it. 
I am insecure at times. In my place, in people's hearts, and how deeply I reside. I wish to be tender in acknowledging this, as the root of it is often loneliness or fear. I get confused when I am faced with insecure fellows, and we begin to reckon with battling projections. I've combated with my own possessiveness, either with shame or denial, but the root of that is my fear of loss. These twisty feelings deserve to be untwisted, listened to, understood, and gradually unlearned. I deserve to voice my feelings, even if they are unresolved, but not use them as weapons. I was going through it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing that offering with us. There's something really powerful about coming to an understanding of the reality of oneself and being able to kind of name that. What helped you get to this place of understanding? I think, honestly, writing this down and journaling was a tool for me, right? It was a tool for me to just be honest about what I was going through because otherwise I was really dishonest about a lot of other things. I was dishonest about how I felt about this person. I was dishonest about how they were treating me. I was in deep denial. And this journaling was the only thing that was pulling me back and being like, hey, this is what's really going on. This is how you're really feeling. Things are actually not okay. How you're being treated is not okay. While at the same time, in a way, I allowed myself to see why I kept going back. And it's because I was feeling insecure in my place in people's hearts, right? And so I kept returning because I just wanted to be loved. That's it. I I just wanted to be loved by this person so badly because there was this like void inside of me just churning around and wondering if I ever could be. And I think this writing, when I look at it, it's interesting because where I am now with the book that I just wrote, it's just like a really extended edition, I think, of this piece, right? I think the book now, what I write about all the time is about how, like I write here, these twisty feelings deserve to be untwisted, listened to, understood, and gradually unlearned. That's exactly the point of my book. And even though when I look back at this person five years ago, I'm like, oh, this person didn't know anything. I'm like, actually, this person knew a lot. This person planted a seed, for what you could have written about today, even when I was in a mode of deep survival and grief and confusion, I already knew. And I think it's because I had this tool of coming back to myself, of being honest. If I didn't have it, I really don't know where I'd be. And so a lot of the work is also encouraging people to do that stream of consciousness writing of just being honest about the messy, right? About the tangled, about the ugly and letting it untangle itself, letting it see the light so it's not as murky anymore. There's something about journaling that just kind of rids you of shame where you're able to be honest in a way that you can't with the people around you and you can just kind of really put that down there. That's what I've always found the most rewarding, I guess, about it. Exactly. My shame was so deep where I was like, I am being abused. I keep going back to this person. I don't deserve to be loved anyway, right? I'm so stupid, et cetera, et cetera. Really derogative things about myself that brought me deeper into a hole. Whereas I think 
maybe a different force, right? A different kind of mindset is kind of like, yes, I keep returning to this person, but let me be honest about how I feel and let me understand why so I can mobilize and find support and resources where I can actually find a different reality and and know what I deserve. And obviously that's so difficult, but I think it's a larger question, right? Of all of our healing, right? Of even like social change, of our relationships with the state. But I always think that a very simple action that can kind of bring us back to that place of unlearning shame, unraveling shame, is the simple act of writing our thoughts down and writing our honesty down and looking at the written page and being like, I'm actually safe here. I'm safe and I'm loved here. That's incredible. I think this podcast is, I talk about it all the time that I am deeply sad that I didn't write more diary entries <laughs> or journal more so I think like you say it is such a safe space and even as like a documentation of where you were in the past it can be such a good tool for growth I'm also interested in something we were talking about earlier with someone who we were chatting to this idea of like I think we always think that change only comes from going like I do this thing I need to stop doing this thing how do I force myself to stop rather than like the awareness and the understanding and just the acknowledgement of I want this I do this thing because I really want this other thing and that understanding of self is like the basis for you to figure out the way out rather than just like why can't I stop doing this thing that I know I shouldn't do you know without interrogating the why or even just giving time to yourself to be like, this is where I'm at right now. Yeah, I feel like the way that maybe some people talk about self-love or, you know, self-improvement or whatever is very much like almost like a flick of the switch where it's just like, just change, just change how you think, just change your behaviors, right? And I'm like, Of course, that is the ultimate goal, right? To have a shift of perspective and a shift of behaviors. Well, like you said, I think interrogating those actions and like maybe like the core or the force of what is driving that, right? I think for me, like we were saying, like, yes, I wanted to liberate myself from this relationship. Well, at the same time, I think actually interrogating like, why can't I leave this relationship was really helpful and understanding not only my relationship with that person but my relationship to love right and it actually even brought me to my parents right to intergenerational trauma and to the patterns in my lifetime that have kind of existed and recreated themselves I think right now kind of maybe generational trauma is something that we're beginning to explore collectively though I know that artists have been doing that for generations. But I think because it's almost become part of the mainstream conversation now, I think about how that generational trauma, it requires actually like deep investigation and unraveling of a pattern instead of just being like, it's just not as easy as people say like, oh, let's just change. How do we change something that Mm. has been going on for generations right and I think it's possible but I do think it requires that depth Mm. even scientists are now studying epigenetics so like I feel like even though we've all been screaming about this for ages (laughs) I think it's a really important topic there's a line in the extract 
where you say these twisty feelings deserve to be untwisted. How how do you untwist those twisty feelings? I think this is a question that I always ask myself too. I think, you know, one of the first ones is journaling and honesty, right? Carving a safe space out for yourself to even name those feelings, right? That's my number one. But also I actually very recently learned of another tool that's been really helpful. And my therapist, shout out to my amazing therapist, taught me to have conversations with my fear, right? And that was really profound for me. And she has challenged me very deeply, which I think I need when it comes to therapy. But she's actually asked me to role play as my fear. So I take on the role as fear, right, about my fears, about my insecurities, and I just talk, right? So I say something like, I'm afraid that I'll never be loved. I'm afraid that I'll never be good enough. And just say that to Mimi, who then I will also play. And I'll be like, for example, I'll just say like, why do you not think that you're enough? Where did this come from? And then we just chat. And of course, at first I was like, oh my gosh, like this is so (laughs) embarrassing. But that's the voice of shame coming up, right? Where it feels like I don't deserve to have that conversation, where I don't deserve to have that closeness with myself. So I think what it really is about, when we talk about self-love and stuff, I think what I'm really invested in is also self-closeness, about what it means to really just like hold yourself when you understand what's working in and out in the internal world and the external world. And so that's been a really helpful tool for me to untwist those twisty feelings because I I think I deserve to. I think that's the biggest thing of all. And these feelings also deserve to be understood, I think. When I actually externalize it as literally a role play, I actually, when I talk to fear, I'm like, you deserve to be heard too. Yeah, you don't just deserve to be kind of silenced or stifled or kind of dismissed as seen as, you know, frivolous or whatever. That's a, that's yeah. a really interesting perspective. I wanted to just go back to something that you touched on because we I really wanted to talk to you about it, which is that idea of how, especially for people of colour, a lot of our twisty feelings can end up being twisted and tangled up in these kind of generational traumas, cultures, belief systems. And I, yeah, I wanted to just dig a little bit deeper into the connections you kind of made between the cultures and the identities that you have and the kind of insecurities that you were facing during this time. My biological family and I have worked through a lot together and I actually had a boundary in my book to not write about them that much. And of course, as the book ends, when the last page, you know, you turn the last page, the story obviously continues and I continue doing deep work about not being afraid of love, which I still am so much of the time, right? And specifically with my biological family, as I have unpacked my relationship with them, I have also learned about their relationship with emotions. And the Chinese, you know, we grew up without a lot of money. My parents have definitely also experienced their fair share of trauma. The immigrants, they immigrated to Australia. And... As I've 
tried to heal my relationship with them and kind of understand these generational traumas that we all kind of deal with. I learned that the way that I'm really hard on myself, the way that when I've had emotions before, when I've cried, sometimes the reaction I've gotten from family when I was a kid was just like, shut up. Like crying is not useful, right? Like, like why are you feeling this? Get over it. That was pretty harmful for me, honestly, growing up. And I think right now, even the work that I do is actually untangling that. But I also had a dawning realization that the way that they talk to me about shutting up when I cry is the way they talk to themselves. When my parents have been deeply emotional and gone through some stuff, I see how they stifle that and they press it down. And I think maybe that's also because within the culture that they grew up in, or at least within maybe when they immigrated to Australia, they had to prove themselves like 10 times, right? Tenfold. They had to show that they were useful and productive and therefore their emotions were not. Their emotions held them back from proving that they deserve to be in that country. And I think that's like a pretty common experience from a lot of especially immigrant parents of people of color where because you have to prove yourself so much, right? Just to just to say you deserve basic rights, just to even say you deserve to be in that place, that anything that has been deemed not useful is shelved away, is compartmentalized, and therefore continuing that pattern and doing that to your kids and continuing that in generational cycles is super harmful and I think deserves to be unpacked and unraveled and untwisted. Yeah. Mm, I really think we underestimate what that does to a child, being told to kind of like not cry or you wouldn't tell someone like, don't laugh. Like it's so strange to like repress an emotion in a child and you, you just take that with you into adulthood. Exactly, just to feel a basic feeling, you know? Like like you said, you wouldn't tell a child to not love. And I think about how we have kind of assigned this binary of like good emotions, bad emotions. Good emotions, feel them because that'll make you do the best work ever and then you'll be a girl boss and you'll be positive. But the bad emotions, not useful. Waste of time, waste of space. And it's like, but they're telling me what I care about, right? These bad quote unquote feelings are telling me what I care about, what I want, how I want to be loved. And so I deserve to understand them better because I'm a firm believer that if we don't take the time to understand these negative emotions, they're going to transmute into something else. They're going to transmute into toxic behavior, right? Into violence, into harm, which is exactly what I think generally generationally has happened too, where maybe our families have stifled their emotions but it's still come out in really toxic ways, right? So I think actually we all benefit from understanding our emotions better because then we're not going to act out, right? Or enact harm in ways that we don't really understand. I think it's always important to understand how the harm that we are capable of causing, but also the feelings behind that, right? Yeah, I think that's such a good point in terms of like the emotions are going to be there regardless. The the real kind of crux of it is how you actually channel them and where they where they express themselves. But if you don't 
if you don't cry, it doesn't mean that you're not upset. It doesn't mean that you don't have those feelings. They're just going to end up pushing into a different channel and finding you later. I'm always like, did we hmm. not learn anything from Pixar's Inside Out? <laughs> we need all the emotions. <laughs> <laughs> they were telling us. They told us. <laughs> That's exactly what my, my therapist was saying, right? When you externalise these emotions and you actually give them a body or a voice... That's exactly what that movie did, right? It's bringing, like, all of those emotions had validity. Like, all of them had something to say. All of them wanted to be loved in a specific way. And it's interesting because I think they all kind of wanted the same thing at the end of the day. They were just expressing it differently. And so, you know, like we've been saying, like, all these emotions hold depth and validity and require us to understand them to be closer to ourselves. Yeah, I wanted to ask, to, I guess, to what degree do your insecurities still manifest today? Wow, big question. <laughs> I'm insecure all the time, all the time. I am insecure career-wise. I can be really jealous. I'm insecure when it comes to relationships. Kind of, again, like what I wrote in the excerpt, like, I wonder about my place in people's hearts. I wonder if I'm good enough to be loved. I wonder if I'm worthy of being loved, right? And I think what's different now, though, is that I have more tools to be kind to myself as these insecurities come up. I think that's what's important. I think we're people. I cannot project my existence as a perfect one, free of insecurities. I wish that was the case. But if we're also being real, especially like non-white people, we're not taught to love ourselves. Well, at least for me, right? And I know that when I was a kid, loving myself was not part of the conversation. And so when people kind of bring up self-love as this like thing to do like easily through tasks and consumption, I'm like, I don't think it's that easy. I think it's actually a spiritual and bodily belief that I am just becoming aware of now. And so as I kind of understand what self-love and self-compassion is, I'm also like looking at my insecurities and being like, instead of just pushing them away and telling them that they are bad, like again, allocating that bad label to that, I'm actually also sitting with them and being like, of course I feel insecure. I wasn't taught that I even was like physically like meant to fit in, right? I wasn't taught that anything that I offered to the world was valid or important. I was actually taught quite the opposite, right? And so I think it's a larger conversation about, of course, definitely how like young people of color are raised Right, how they're taught to love themselves in a spiritual and bodily, physical way. And then looking at me now and being like, okay, now that I like hold all of these tools, yes, I am insecure still, but I know how to treat myself in it now. Instead of just condemning myself and being ashamed of those insecurities, to name them and be like, yes, I feel insecure about this. How could I not because of X, Y, and Z, because of how I was raised, because of the relationships that I've been in. But also, how do I navigate that now? And how do I love myself and kind of become more secure again or come to a place of security or hold myself as that insecurity kind of takes over my body? 
And so, yes, I definitely still feel insecure about so many different things. I get triggered by so many different things. But I think what's different now is that I actually know how to deal with them. And it's that I name them, honestly, and I hold myself in it. And I tell myself, it's actually okay that you're insecure. I understand how and why that happened. This is how I can hold you as this happens. And this is how I can reassure you and let you understand that actually you don't have to compare yourself to people all the time and you are deserving of love as you are. Amazing. I I just keep saying uh, amazing. That is incredible. And I I think we've talked a lot about the internal work, I guess, that is kind of at play in in this journal entry. But also when I read it, the last line in particular really like, hit me because I think it's just really relatable that idea of like being insecure in your in how other people feel about you but struggling to figure out how to communicate that without it feeling like a weapon without it feeling like an attack or it feeling like you know it's this pressure or you know like if I express this insecurity and then this person does that thing does that mean that they genuinely love me like that or they're just doing what I Mm. I've asked of them if that makes sense and so I just wanted to ask if you feel like if you've made much progress or have any thoughts on that idea of kind of like giving voice to these kind of incomplete feelings in a free and healthy way that feels like healthy for you but also for the person who you know you want to communicate that with I actually have had to have these conversations recently and it was extremely transformative because what was kind of uncovered when I talked to this person was I basically asked for permission to be insecure. I was like, hey, I want to let you know that I feel insecure about this. It's so hard for me to tell you, but I'm telling you now because I guess there are certain things that we could do to kind of like provide reassurance if that's possible. And honestly, at first it didn't go well at all. And the way that we unpacked that, and that was like my, my fear, like, coming alive I was like oh no like I just opened up about this thing and I feel like you're being really like unkind to me and or being really impatient with that but then we got deeper into it and they realized that they felt reactive to my insecurity because they were uncomfortable with theirs right they had kind of brushed off insecurity as this like poisonous thing that they didn't want to deal with And so then they had to investigate, like, actually, why am I so scared of insecurity? And it's because I don't face my own. And then they actually voiced their insecurities to me. And we had this really transformative conversation about both of our insecurities. And it just brought us so much closer. Like, I was like, I finally got to see you as a person who feels these things inevitably, right? Of course you have felt these things. And I hold you. And I love you despite that. Actually, I love you, like, because you've actually given me that space to know you better, right? That deepens everything. And so for me, I think communicating really openly and honestly about our insecurities is really transformative. While at the same time, I think that um, if somebody is, like, unkind to you in that experience... It says something about their relationship with insecurity more than it says about yours. Yeah. Oh, that is very, very wholesome. What advice would you give to that younger version of yourself five years ago who's grappling 
with these feelings, who's in this relationship? I would say, I'm so proud of you for naming what you've named. I want you to know that you deserve so much better and what you need right now are the tools to believe that and trust that they will come in the form of relationship, in the form of these pure moments of seeing a butterfly fly outside your window, of seeing a leaf unfurl, of simple moments in love, you will see the love that you hold in yourself and you will be liberated and you will be kind to yourself as you are liberated. You don't have to punish yourself anymore. And I understand why you've done the things that you've done and I love you despite all of it. Thank you so much. And our final question, what would your younger self who's going through this moment think of where you are right now? Oh, these questions are so wholesome. I think that they would be in awe. I think that they would not believe it, honestly. But I think that they would be extremely... I think what it would do for them, it would make them feel like they are worth loving. And I think that's really important to me. I think my younger self would just be really excited to survive and to continue and to not be afraid of love anymore and to learn what that means for them. Oh, thank you so much, Mimi. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. I just feel so much lighter. I know, I'm kind of almost lost for words. Yeah, Mimi had such a, like, calming, thoughtful presence. It's just, I don't know. And the extract, even though I think, I, I wasn't aware of the kind of relationship background, but I think it speaks to so many of us and so many of the fears we have about being worthy, being loved, being problematic in how we want to be loved and, like, making mistakes and the shame that, that can shroud that. Yeah. There's something about like shame and insecurity and not feeling afraid to name that and be mm. like, this is just real. This is how I'm feeling right now. It might not yeah. be right. It might not be helpful. I might feel terrible, but that's the truth I'm in, which yeah. I thought was like a big takeaway. Yeah. Me. I also think that idea of like, in naming your own insecurities and even if you're fully comfortable with them, there is the, always that second step of what happens when I express that to another mm. person, like having to meet your insecurities with theirs yes. and figure out that middle ground is like, that's half of the battle really, because you can be as proud of, of yourself as you want and rid yourself of all of that shame and guilt, but you're always in a relation relational kind of connection with someone else who's coming with their own stuff too. Yeah, and kind of like naming your fears and your shame kind of gives them less power in some ways, mm. I think. Like actually confronting them head on feels like they're a little less scary once you kind of say it out loud. Or another obstacle, you know, that you have to like stand strong against, which is like, I have this need and this is how I want to be loved. And like they could come at you and be like, I have the opposite. <laughs> I have the opposite desire. <laughs> I can't and like, do that. My, yeah, I can't do that for you because of this X, Y, and Z. And I think that's 
something that you don't often think about because we barely ever get past that first step. I think I think the thing that I'll take away the most is that idea of like, I'm literally getting emotional. There's that idea of like love as something that, you know, you can be afraid of receiving, but like the power of just like generating it for yourself is the only way that you're going to get past that. And mm. kind of the passive way that you relate to it has nothing to do with your own worth and your value as a person. Like all you can really play a part in is how you express it to other people. This has been an II Studios production. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can sign up to become a member at gal-dem.com for access to exclusive discounts with our favourite brands and partners, early access to tickets for Galdem events, an advanced copy of our annual print issue, and so much more. Make sure you're following us on all major social media at galdemzine or visit our website at gal-dem.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.